You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is For Such a Time as This, Episode 11, with Daniel Pell. Welcome to our presentation, A Search for Stars, which is part of our series entitled For Such a Time as This. Tonight we want to look at our identity in the light of the great controversy, our identity in the light of Scripture. And our opening text is going to be found in 1 Peter. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. And we're going to read this text. And then after we've read the text, we'll have a prayer. And then we'll get right into our study for tonight. But I invite you to first turn to this text together with me. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Each one of us is chosen to be part of that generation that God has called and that God is working through to bring people out of darkness and into his glorious light. When we step into the glorious light of Christ, we become not only partakers of that glorious light, but there's a task upon us to call others out of darkness and into his light. And we're going to find out tonight how we can be just those people for such a time as this. But let's pray before we continue with our study. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together here. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Lord, we believe that you have so much in store for us, and we pray for a blessing tonight. We pray that you will speak to our hearts and to our minds, and that you will show us our identity and the purpose of our existence in the very time in which we are living. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We can only fully understand our identity in the light of Bible prophecy by looking at the greater or larger picture that the scriptures present to us. It is always very helpful when you study the Bible, and I've mentioned this before in this series, to take, as it were, a step back and to grasp the larger picture or the bigger picture so that you can identify yourself in the larger story. And so that's exactly what we want to do tonight. We want to take a step back and we want to look at the framework of the great controversy that is being raged between good and evil in this universe, in this world. And we want to pinpoint where we are in this great controversy and what part we play in this grand story, in this narrative. It is fascinating that God has called us, according to the text we already read, to be a chosen generation. We are indeed a chosen generation and God has brought us into existence for a, speci a special purpose and a significant work. For such a time as this, we are truly here. And in order to understand, though, what our task is and what our purpose is, we need to take that step back. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. And so 
I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation as we go back to the very beginning of this great conflict between good and evil, the very beginning of this great controversy. Revelation, and I invite you to turn to chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and let's read verse 7. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, we read here in this short verse about a battle that took place, not in the Middle East, not somewhere in Africa or Asia. This is a battle that took place in heaven, maybe the least expected place for a battle. And yet this war that broke out in heaven was the very war that triggered this great controversy in which we now all have a part. It says that the dragon fought with Jesus, with, with Michael. Michael is another word for Jesus. Michael actually means the one who is like God. And there's really only one in Scripture that we read about that is like God, and that is Jesus Christ himself. He is, the dragon is at war with Christ and there are angels that side with the dragon in this battle. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in this very same chapter, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3 and 4, that a third part of the angel sided in this battle with the dragon or with Lucifer. Take notice of verse 3 and 4 in Revelation chapter 12. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and threw them to the ground. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The Bible tells us in verse 4 that this dragon, with his tail, he drew a third part of the stars of heaven. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, you learn that a star is representing an angel. And so a third part of the angels are siding with the dragon or with Lucifer in this great grand conflict against God himself, against Christ himself. Now, stars are a symbol of angels, and a third part of the angels side with the dragon. And we read in another text in the Old Testament about what went on in the very heart of Lucifer. And uh, we also read about the very intentions he had and what happened. And so turn with me in your Bibles from Revelation to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. In order to understand the book of Revelation, we need to go back and look at some texts in the Old Testament that shed light on these incredible prophecies as we have a look at the great, great controversy that is taking place. And so here we are at the very outset of this controversy, and in Isaiah chapter 14, we read about what was going on in the very heart, in the very mind of Lucifer. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Where did Lucifer want to be? He wanted to be above the stars of God or above the very angels of God. 
It says, it goes on to say, I will also sit in the mount of congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And as we mentioned earlier in this series, Lucifer did not want to be, did not want to be like the Most High in personality, but he wanted to be like the Most High in power. And so he wants the power that belongs to God. He is the created one, and yet he wants to be above the creator. You see, there are two principles in heaven. It's the principle of love and the principle of service. Now, Lucifer did not want to, he did not want to love, but he wanted to be loved, and he wanted to have dominion. And the Bible tells us that not only did he want, he didn't want to serve any longer, but he only wanted to be served. And so he wanted to be loved and be served and not give as a recipient of these things given by God. And so he makes war. And this war was really a war that was rooted and grounded in the selfishness of Lucifer. We read there in Isaiah chapter 14, very clearly, there's a word that repeats itself in this text, and that is the word I, I. I. Lucifer had a problem with self. Self was exalted and he was able to persuade and convince a third part of the angels of God to side with him in this great battle as he spoke lies about the very character of God. And so there was a third part of the angels of heaven that believed those lies about the character of God as Lucifer portrays God in a way that he is not, and yet so convincingly that this battle breaks out. And here we are in the world today as a result of this great battle that happened thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Here we are as a result of this self-exaltation of an angel that once stood in the very presence of God but decided that he no longer wanted to serve and love, but only be served and be loved. And so things started happening. And you read about this great controversy that broke out. And some people will think, well, what does that have to do with me? But as I say, we only understand our position and identity and purpose in life as we step back and we look at the grander picture, the overall picture of the great controversy. And so here we read about the outset of this battle, the outset of this controversy, and how Lucifer wanted to exalt himself above the stars of God. Sad to say, God lost a third part of his stars. God lost a third part of his angels. And the question that must be asked, that begs to be asked as you read about this prophecy in Revelation chapter 12 is, how is God, how is God going to regain his stars? He has lost a third part of his stars. How is he going to regain those stars? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. As we look at the great controversy... We need to look at the story of those that were living in this great controversy. And we have that story beginning in the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's a narrative of individuals that were born into this world, that were born into this battle zone. 
And one of those was a man by the name of Abram. And Abram was chosen by God to be the father of the faithful. You might remember those texts in the New Testament. You read about um, Paul that writes about Abram. He says, if you are Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. He writes in Galatians chapter 3. And so uh, what is now known to be the father of the faithful is none other than Abram. And we become spiritual Jews or spiritually part of that family as we accept Jesus Christ in our lives. But here in Genesis chapter 15, I want you to take notice of something fascinating. In Genesis chapter 15, there was a point of time when Abram had no children. There was a point of time when Abram was old and he did not know who was going to inherit um, his possessions, who was going to carry forward the name, and who was going to be the next in line. And so in Genesis chapter 15, Abram is communicating with God, and take notice of this conversation, fascinating. Verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. This is the, the words of the Lord to Abram. But Abram said, he responds to the Lord in verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, I have, I have no one to follow me. And, you know, the only heir I have is my servant. And then verse 3, then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but, you, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Now look at the promise in verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to number them, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Isn't that fascinating? Abraham is wondering how things are going to continue. He's getting old. He has no one to follow him. He has no son. And God promises that he's going to have a son. And how does God do that? He's, he takes Abram outside. And it must have been one of those beautiful nights, clear heavens. And God says, look up. And he looks up and there's, he sees nothing else but stars and stars and stars. You remember, one of, well, you've possibly had one of those beautiful nights when you're out in the countryside, there are no lights around you, the, the, the skies are clear and there's nothing else but stars. And it must have been one of those nights and Abram is looking up into the heavens and he's seeing the stars and then God says to him, so shall your descendants be. And then in the New Testament, we read where Paul says in Galatians, he says, if you be Christ, you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you are by faith a son and daughter of Abram. And when Abram looked up into the skies, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, he looked up into the sky he was seeing a star that represented you. Think about that. He was seeing a star that represented you. 
Now, in this great controversy, according to Revelation chapter 12, God lost a third part of his stars. The devil, Lucifer, the dragon that made war against Michael and his angels, against Christ and his angels, it says in Revelation 12 that with his tail he drew a third part of the stars from heaven. Lucifer is saying, these are mine. And God, and, and, and inevitably we have to ask the question, how is God going to regain those stars? The Bible tells us in Genesis that the descendants of Abram, which are also spiritual descendants by faith in Jesus Christ, are represented by stars. Isn't that fascinating? Now turn to the book of Daniel as we deepen this theme. Turn to the book of the, the prophetic book of Daniel in the Old Testament. That's the twin book of Revelation. And turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel and the 12th chapter. And verse 3, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. Listen to what it says. A great, great encouragement to God's people here. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, the Bible says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So at the end of this grand prophecy that you read about in, in Daniel chapter 11, and it continues into Daniel chapter 12, right there at the very end of this grand, grand prophecy, because the very next verse, verse 4, says um, the, the angel says to Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So just prior to the sealing up and closing of the book, the words are uttered in verse 3, there are going to be those that are going to be wise, there are going to be those in the end of time that will turn many others to righteousness, that will point people to Jesus. And these are like the stars forever and ever. These are like the generation of those that are going to fill that empty spot in heaven. They're going to fill that spot of being my stars. They're going to shine as the brightness of the firmament forever and ever. Ever. My friends, you and I are called to be a star for God. Now, when we think about stars in our mind, if I just say stars, there are stars in this world. There are many uh, in this world that, 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 that are seen as stars. And yet, I believe many of the stars that we look up to in this world don't really have an understanding of the true purpose and call that God has upon them and upon each of us. You see, each of us is called to be a star, but the question is, what kind of star are we? Are we a star that brings glory to ourself, as Lucifer did in the beginning of this great controversy? Or are we going to be a star that is going to reflect the glory of God so that we can put on display the character of God in this world? That's the question. What kind of star are we? Now, the Bible talks about wandering stars, stars that have lost their purpose. We read about that in the book of Jude. Turn with me there. If you can find the book of, Je of Revelation, you can find the book of Jude because it's just before the book of Revelation. So go all the way to the end of your Bible, not to the book of Revelation, but just before Revelation, we have the book of Jude. It's a one-chapter book. And in, in, in Jude and in that one chapter and in verse 11, we read about wandering stars. Verse 11 and 12, let's read Jude chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. The Bible says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, 
while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, verse 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So the Bible talks about wandering stars. They are those that walk in the footsteps of three individuals that are mentioned in verse 11, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, if you go back to these stories regarding these three, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, you will find that these are those that, have, that turned their back on God, that once knew God, that understood that their calling was to reflect the glory of God, but instead turned away from him. Cain was the very first one that turned his back on God. And those that walk in the footsteps of Cain, Balaam, and Korah, they have lost their purpose and they have become, according to verse 13, a wandering star. They're called to be a true star to put on display the character of God, but they have become a wandering star, a star that has lost his purpose, a star that has lost his identity. You see, we have an identity in this great controversy. We have a clear role to play in this great controversy. We are chosen to be stars for God, but we can only shine as a star for Christ when we follow the star, which is Jesus Christ. Remember the kings of the east, when they wanted to find Jesus, what were they following? They were following the star. And if we follow the star Christ, we will be able to be the stars of prophecy that God has designed us and created us to be. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, it says the following, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. It talks about the day star of prophecy that must rise in our hearts. And of course, that's none other than Jesus Christ himself. And when that day star rises in our hearts, when Jesus finds a place in us, we will be able to not in our own strength shine, but Jesus will shine in us. And this is the purpose of our creation. Now let's have a little closer look at the great controversy and our role in the great controversy. I want you to turn to the book of Ezekiel and chapter 28 as we take a closer look at our role in this great controversy. We have already seen that we are called to be stars God has lost a third part of his stars and he wants to replace those stars by the sons and daughters of Abraham. By faith in Christ Jesus, we can become part of that family. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we have another picture of Lucifer and what happened to Lucifer and his fall. And I believe, I believe this passage in Ezekiel 28 sheds more light on not only on the beginning of this great controversy, but also upon our role as stars in this great scene. Now, take notice of Ezekiel 28, and we'll start in verse 14. Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in verse 14 talking about this being, Lucifer, um, that later became known as the dragon and Satan. He was once an exalted angel with God, and yet he made war on God, and then Revelation pictures him as the dragon. But here in verse 14, 
He's described in all his beauty. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Many people have a hard time understanding that verse. God created this being that was beautiful, marvelous, excellent, perfect. And Lucifer walked in the very presence of God. He dwelt in God's very own presence. And yet, iniquity was found in him. And this can only be understood when we, understood, and when we understand the character of God. The character of God is a God that creates, not robots that are programmed to obey, but he creates us with the ability for us to choose. Because God is a God of freedom. God is a God that does not want programmed obedience, but he wants for us to obey out of love. God is love, and love necessitates the risk to say yes or no. You see, the very fact that we are married to the person that we are married to is because that person said yes to us and we said yes to them. There was an agreement. Love is never, love can never be forced. And so in this great controversy picture, some people have a hard time understanding how Lucifer could fall, but it all makes sense in the grander, greater picture of God's love. God is love and therefore he gives that possibility to say no. And Lucifer, in this scenario portrayed here in Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer turns against his creator. And we read in verse 16 the following. Look at what happens. It says, By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Quite an interesting scenario there in Ezekiel chapter 28. Lucifer would lose his position as a high angel. And when he rebelled against God, he was cast out of heaven. And yet he drew with him a third part of the angels. Some people ask the question, why did God not immediately destroy Lucifer? Why didn't he just zap him out right there at the moment when he rebelled? Well, you know, if God would have done that, what kind of picture would God have created for the rest of the angels? The rest of the angels would think to themselves, okay, that's how it works here in heaven. Once you question the authority of God, you're out, you're gone. So God wanted the full um, scope of the decision of Lucifer to be seen by the entire universe. And so because Lucifer is cast out, and we, and we know the rest of the story, how this earth becomes involved in this great controversy, what is happening now in the universe is that the universe is seeing the results of self-seeking. The universe is seeing the results of sin. And what, I mean, we can all testify, and we all know what, the, what those results are like. We are living in this very world, invested with sorrow, pain, suffering, sin. We look around us and we see every single day the results of that decision that Lucifer made. And so the universe is like, uh, this world is like a theater for the universe. As the universe looks on and sees the results of sin, which led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
and now is leading to much sorrow and pain and suffering. And all this is done. And God, in, in, in his all-knowingness and, and, his, and, and, and in his wisdom, has allowed this to go on so that at one point of time, when the universe will be completely rid of sin, sin will never rise up a second time because the consequences and result of sin has been seen by all. Now, in this great controversy picture, it's interesting to note that there is another aspect of why Lucifer was not destroyed at once. And there's a principle in the Old Testament that illustrates what, what God um, and why God waited with the destruction of Lucifer. And I want you to turn in your Bibles and keep your finger in Ezekiel 28. We'll come back there in just a moment. But turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book of Moses. And we'll come back to Ezekiel in just a moment. But turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And I want to look at a principle that was established in Israel, but which is a principle that you can take and stretch out over the great controversy. And it makes a lot of sense why God did not destroy Lucifer at once. A principle that you might not have thought about before. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, I want to read verse 16 to verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Listen to this principle of the nation of Israel, but which is also a principle that can be applied to the great controversy. The Bible says, If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away evil from among you. So that, that principle that we read about there was ultimately so that evil would be done away with, would be put away with. Now, ultimately we, ultimately, we know that in the end of this great controversy, evil is going to be put away. Evil is going to be removed. Now, what's the principle there in Deuteronomy chapter 19? The principle is very simple. When two people have a controversy, there is a disagreement. There is a battle. There's this war, whatever, to whatever extent that may be. That's between these two individuals. And they cannot solve it. And so there needs to be, according to the text there, there needs to be what we call a third party. There needs to be people, there needs to be some judges that were not involved in this great controversy, but then will hear the cases from both sides and then judge accordingly. And so we read how the, the two must come before the judges. Now think about that principle. You take that simple principle that was applied in the everyday life of the, of the Israelites in the past, and you take that principle and you stretch it across the great controversy. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, in the beginning of the great controversy, in Revelation chapter 12, when war broke out between the dragon, Satan, and Michael, Jesus, was, how many parties were there? There were only two, right? There were two parties when that great controversy broke out. Those that sided with the dragon and those that sided with Jesus, right? So there is a divine, we could call it a divine standstill in this great controversy because we need a what? We need a third party, exactly. We need a third party party. Lucifer is accusing God. Lucifer is portraying lies about God. And the whole universe has taken sides. 
There is a divine standstill in this case, a standstill until God has a what? A third party. And those third party, that, those are to be the judges in this great controversy. And so the question inevitably comes to your mind and to my mind, who are those judges? Who, who, who are those? Who are those that are part of the third party that are going to judge this great controversy? Well, I asked you to keep your finger in Ezekiel. I hope you did that. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 28 now. And let's look a little bit closer at this picture here. Um, Ezekiel chapter 28, and look at verse 17, verse 17. The Bible says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. This is talking about Lucifer. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. What was going to happen to Lucifer? Well, he gloried and yet he would be brought down. He would be cast to the ground. And then the Bible says, very interesting, he said, it says, I laid you before who? Before kings. I laid you before kings. Now, the word lay comes from the Hebrew word nathan, which means to judge or to charge. The term refers to judgment. You might remember the story when the woman was caught in adultery and she was cast before Jesus and Jesus was to do what? was to judge her, right? And so this, this terminology, this language here is indicating judgment. And those that are going to judge Lucifer are referred to in this text as kings. Now the question then is, who are these kings? Who are these jurors? Who is this third party in the great controversy? Well, we're going to do a little Bible study. I'm going to bring you to three texts, and we're just going to read these three texts after each other, and then we're going to ask that question again, and I think, I think we'll be all on the same page as to the answer to this question. Three texts, okay? Text number one, Revelation chapter one and verse six. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation, and the first chapter in the book of Revelation, and verse Six. And why don't we read verse 5 as well, just to get the context there. First, uh, Revelation chapter 1, and I'll read verse 5 and 6. This is our first text. Listen to what it says. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us what? Kings, right? According to verse 6. Okay, second text. Revelation chapter 20. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. And for those of you that have studied Revelation chapter 20, you will know that that's the chapter about the millennium. It's the chapter about the thousand years that God's people are going to spend in heaven before we come back to this earth and New Jerusalem is settled on this earth. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, listen to what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. This is our second text. It says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So those that are living and reigning with Jesus Christ, judgment was committed to them. All right, now our final text, our third text, to find out who these jurors are, who these kings are, who this third party actually is, turn to 1 Corinthians 
Go back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to read verse 2 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 3. And we read there, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if, you, and, and, and if the world would be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Now, after those three texts, is it clear who those kings are? Is it clear who those jurors are? Is it clear who are the, the third party? My friends, you and I are invited to be the third party. You and I are invited to be the jurors in this great controversy. You and I are destined and purposed by God to be those that will judge this great controversy. You see, in order for you to be one of those jurors, you, were, you, you couldn't have been there when that great when the great controversy broke out. That makes sense, right? Now, was anyone there? Any of you were there when Michael fought with the dragon? No, I wasn't there either. So that qualifies us to be jurors, right? Because there was a divine standstill in this great controversy because everyone had taken sides. And so man is now created and with the purpose to be that third party, to be the juror in this great controversy. And Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, he says, can you not even judge the little matters of life? Do, do you not know that, that God has purposed you to judge angels, to be the jury in this great controversy? In the light of the great controversy, you and I are called to be stars of God, stars of God. God has lost a third part of his stars and he's searching for stars, for those that are sons and daughters of Abram, but that put their faith in Jesus and become part of that spiritual Israel that is represented by the stars in the universe. And not only has he called you to be a star, he has called you to be a juror. He wants you to judge in this great controversy. He has ordained and purposed that we, during the thousand years in heaven, according to Revelation chapter 20, that we will sit on those thrones, but not just sit on those thrones, but we will actually have a look, a grand look, a great look at the great controversy. And each of us will see the evidence that shows that Christ is righteous in all his acts. Amen? We will be able to proclaim the glory of God and also the righteousness of God in all his decisions in this great controversy. What an incredible calling. What a purpose that we are called to. I mean, when, when I think about this, I think, how on earth can we ever be jurors in the great controversy? And yet this is exactly what God has purposed for us. But we can do, cannot do it in our own strength. The Bible tells us in the book of Philippians, and I invite you to turn there. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. The Bible says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, in order for us to be jurors in the great controversy, in order for us to be that chosen generation that during the thousand years is going to look at all the evidence as a third party and make a right decision regarding the outcome of this great controversy, we are going to have to have the mind of Jesus Christ. 
Because in, with our own mind, our p- sinful, polluted mind, we're not going to be able to be rightful jurors in this great controversy. And so when we receive the mind of Christ, we are being prepared for the task that is going to be ours during the thousand years in heaven. It's absolutely incredible, amazing that God has destined us for something as grand as that. And we feel weak in ourselves, but God wants to prepare us for this very work. This is our role in this great controversy. Now, what do you think Satan is going to try to do knowing all of this? Satan is going to try to put the jurors to sleep. He's going to try to benumb their senses. Doesn't Paul say there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you're going to judge angels, but you can't even judge in the little matters of life, he says. How, you're preparing, you need to prepare for something much grander, much larger. You're going to judge in the great controversy, and yet in the very small issues of life, you fail to cast a rightful judgment. Why? Because you've moved away from the blueprint of Scripture. And what we see is that Satan actively today is putting the jurors to sleep. As a matter of fact, I can think of various stories in the Bible where God's people are asleep at the most critical times. I think, for example, about Peter, James, and John. And we looked at this story earlier in our series. Jesus invites them to come with him on a mountaintop, and Jesus appears before them transfigured in all his glory, the Mount of Transfiguration. And as he appears in all his glory, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. But if you read the account there in the gospel, you read that Peter, James, and John, those three that were chosen to look and behold at that scene, do you know what they were doing? The Bible says that they were sleeping. They woke up and then they saw everything happening before their eyes. But at the first moments, they were sleeping. It's interesting to note that on various uh, stories in the Bible reveal that God's people are sleeping at the most critical moments. Those same three individuals, Peter, James, and John, you fast forward the story a little bit and you come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is literally sweating blood. He is praying and the agony is coming upon him. The sins of the world are being placed on his shoulders. And Jesus asks his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, Please watch and pray with me. And Peter, James, and John are fast asleep. At the most critical moment, God's people are sleeping. Think about Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. The message goes forth, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And the Bible says that all ten of the, of the virgins, not just the five foolish ones, but all ten of them, including the five wise ones, they were sleeping, sleeping at the most critical time. I think of the story of Jonah, Jonah which fled from the Lord and got on that ship and is going in the contrary direction that God had led him to go. And so he's fleeing from the presence of God, not understanding that you cannot flee from the presence of God. And he's on this ship, and then a storm comes, and, and the waves are beating the ship to and fro. It's almost like this boat, this ship, is a picture of this world that is being slammed from side to side by the events in this world today. We have earthquakes, we have hurricanes, we have pestilence, we have wars and rumors of wars, we have moral degradation and environmental, uh, environmental degradation, we have love that is waxing cold, as the Bible says, and we have all these events going on. And it's like the waves that are slamming this world to and fro like this ship that Jonah is on. 
And everyone is working to keep the ship above the waves. But there's one person that is sleeping in the bottom of the ship, and it's God's prophet. Isn't it incredible? That at the most critical moments in earth's history, God's people are vast asleep. And, and, and you read in the story of Jonah, the captain goes down into the bottom of the ship and he shakes Jonah and says, wake up and call on your God. It's almost like the world is shaking the church and saying, wake up, wake up. Look at what's happening around us. In the great controversy, God's jurors, God's third party, those that are chosen to be, the, to judge this great controversy are many times fast asleep. And Satan has benumbed their senses. And it's only when we wake up and understand the times in which we are living and prepare ourselves by a close study of God's word that we will be able to prepare for that day in which judgment will be given to the saints. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, and I love that text in the book of Romans, chapter 13 and verse 11, it says, and, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. It says that knowing the time, it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I don't know when you first believed, if it's one year ago, two years ago, two months ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I don't know how long you've come to believe in Jesus and the message of God's word, but however long it is, today is nearer than when you first believed. Today is nearer. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Very, very soon, according to Bible prophecy, the skies are going to be, be, be peeled back as a scroll and Christ himself is going to come as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is going to redeem those from this earth that, has, that have made him everything in their lives. And he is going to bring them to a place that he has prepared for them. And according to Revelation chapter 20, he brings them to heaven for a thousand years. And during those thousand years in heaven, a judgment is going to take place. And you and I are called to be part of that judgment. You and I are called to be a juror, to be a star, to be those that will look at the evidence of the great controversy as all books are open and all evidence is out. And we will be able to see that God has been righteous in all his ways. We will be able to, 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 to cry out and to give glory to God for everything that he has done. And we will be able to give our witness to the fact that God is righteous and that God's ways are truthful indeed. What a powerful moment that will be. And yet the devil is at work right now in our world to benumb the senses of God's chosen jurors. And many times we find ourselves not being able to judge in the smallest matters of life. And yet there's only one way that we can. There's only one way that we can judge the small matters of life as well as the grander matters of life, as well as the great controversy, and that is by having the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
with the mind of Christ, with the understanding and the wisdom of the Spirit of Jesus, we will be able to look at things in this world and we'll be able to judge between what is right and what is wrong. God gives us through His Spirit and through His Word spiritual discernment. Now, if there's something lacking in the Christian church today, it is spiritual discernment. Worldliness is brought into the church and people look at it and participate in it and they do not judge between what is right and what is wrong. Falsehood and heresy is being preached from pulpits all across this nation and nations in the world, and people are sitting and taking it in, and they're not knowing that the teachings have nothing to do with the Scriptures, that the teachings are teachings of man that are replacing the Word of God. Spiritual discernment is lacking, my friends. It's like Hosea says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And so for us to come back to the center of Scripture is coming back and preparing ourselves to be jurors in this great controversy. As we study the Scriptures as never before, as we allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives, as God gives us the mind of Christ, He will also give us the spiritual discernment which we so much need in our very day and age. And only, not only do we need it in our very day and age, but my friends, it's a preparation for a much larger judgment during the thousand years, the judgment of the great controversy. Controversy. And so in all our choices and all our decisions today, we are preparing for that great moment. And so we need the Spirit of God, the mind of Christ. I want to read you here a quotation from the book Steps to Christ, and it's on page 17. And it talks about what happened when man decided to walk in the footsteps of Lucifer, to walk in the footsteps of the enemy, and to partake of that forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Because that was the moment that Lucifer rejoiced, and he said to God, are those your jurors? Are, is that the third party? Are those the kings? Are those the priests? Are, is that your chosen generation? Look, they can't even judge. They can't even discern. You see, Lucifer was mocking God when they partook of that fruit in the garden, that forbidden fruit. And, Christ ob uh, and, and Steps to Christ, this book, on page 17, it describes it very well. It says the following, Man was originally endowed with noble powers and a well-balanced mind. He was perfect in his being and in harmony with God. His thoughts were pure, his aims holy, but through disobedience his powers were perverted. And selfishness took the place of love. His nature became so weakened through transgression and it was in, that it was impossible for him in his own strength to resist the power of evil. He was made captive by Satan and would have remained so forever had not God specially interposed. It was the tempter's purpose to thwart the divine plan in man's creation and fill the earth with woe and desolation, and he would point to all this evil as the result of God's work in creating man. Take notice that it was his purpose to thwart the divine plan in man's creation. What was the divine plan in man's creation? It was the plan that he would have a well-balanced mind, noble powers, that he would be made in the image of God, that he was going to be made as a juror of this great controversy. And yet the devil, no, the devil seeing that and seeing what God did in creating that first man, he thought, I'm, I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them. And how does he do that? By 
appealing to man's senses, and we read the story there in Genesis chapter 3. Why don't we go there shortly? Look at how this all unfolded itself there at that forbidden tree in Genesis chapter 3. Because what the devil is doing here, what Satan is doing, is he is he's saying to man, why don't you be your own judge? Why don't you decide and discern for yourself rather than obey God's word, God's commandment? Look at Genesis chapter 3. We know the story, but let's read it again in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall eat, not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, he twists the words of God here, as he did at the very outset of the great controversy. The verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now what the serpent is doing is he's distorting the picture of God. He's distorting the picture of God through lying about the character of God. God has said, if you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And the devil says, you shall not surely die. God had said, you may eat of all the trees except that one. And the devil says, can't you eat of any of the trees? Uh, and then, can't you eat of any of the fruit? And then in verse 5, uh, the devil says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. In other words, judge for yourself. Discern for yourself. And that's exactly the tactics that the enemy is using today. Judge for yourself. Discern for yourself. Make your own decisions. Why would, you be, why would you be limited in your decisions to the scriptures? Why would you be limited in your decisions to the word of God? See, he's making the very same. His tactic has not changed, my friends. And today, as we're living here in 2011, as we're living at the very time in which spirituality is dying around us, spiritual discernment is lacking. At this very time, God is inviting you and inviting me to a fresh understanding of his word. He's inviting you and inviting me to open this book again, to read it and study it as never before, and to find in it our purpose and plan and to prepare ourselves to fulfill that which God has called us to fulfill in the light of this great controversy. What a great calling. What a great, great purpose that we are created for. You know, we don't have to go through this life aimlessly. We don't have to go to this life wondering what tomorrow is going to be like and next week is going to be like. We don't have to go around as if we're here just by accident. We have a special purpose, a special plan, and God has revealed it in the light of his great controversy. And that is for you and for me to be a juror in this great controversy, for you and, to, and me to be a star for God. And I pray that each one of you will take that seriously, that call, that purpose, and that you will seek the Lord in prayer and ask him how you can fulfill that task, both in this life and prepare to fulfill that task in the life to come. This series that we've been involved with, this series that we have been studying, has us title for such a time as this. And I believe indeed that we are here for just such a time as this. God is preparing a generation of jurors, and you and I can be amongst them. As we realize the high calling that God has placed upon our life, 
Our perspectives change. Our, uh, it, it influences the decisions we make. It, in, it influences the direction we take in life. We realize that we're not here by accident. We realize that we're not here by coincidence, but that God has a special purpose, and we make our decisions based on that purpose. It's like we navigate our way through life based upon what we know about the larger picture of the great controversy and about our specific place in this story. And I pray that as the decisions that you make and as you navigate your way through life, that your decisions will be molded uh, by the knowledge that you have of the great controversy revealed in Scripture and the very special plan that God has for you. How many of you want to prepare yourself to be jurors in this great controversy? Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray in closing. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for the revelations that you give us through your word. Lord, as we look at the great controversy that is raging around us and in which we are all involved, I pray that we may find our purpose and plan in it. The purpose and plan that you have given us, Lord, and help us to embrace it and help it to form the decisions and choices that we make on a daily basis so that we may become the people that you have ordained us to be, that you've created us to be. Thank you so much, Lord, for the high calling that you have upon our lives. Thank you that you want to make us stars in this great controversy. Help us to shine, Lord, with the light, not that we have of ourselves, but the light that we receive from your word, from you, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for giving us understanding. And Lord, we pray that in our weakness, in our frailty, we may cling to you. That Lord, at times of difficulty, we may turn to you and that you may be our guide. As you guided the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness and into the promised land, so we know that you want to guide us today. Lord, we need your guidance more than ever. We see that spirituality is declining around us. Worldliness is entering into, the, into Christianity and we are seeing that truth has fallen in the streets as your word tells us. But Lord, in the light of all of this, in the light of these decisive times in which we are living, we turn to you and ask for you to empower us and strengthen us and for you to give us direction for we want to build our lives upon your word and your word alone. And we thank you that you are more than willing and more than able to perform that which we request because it is your wish and your will. And so we trust in your word, we trust in you, and we pray and ask these things in your name. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.